pleasure to be with you. I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Our great Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we pray you would show us wonderful things in your law. Impress the gospel into reality in our hearts for your glory and for our own good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you hadn't gotten the drift, we're talking about fear this morning. I could probably think of a few less popular topics to address, but I didn't really want to try. Um, But let me talk to you for a moment about how this topic became important to me. Start off with this. In 1933, in his inaugural address, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uttered these famous words, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Probably heard that. It's uh, been remembered over the ages. It's a beautiful piece of spokesmanship. It has uh, an enduring quality. The problem is, it's not true. It's not true. And this began to make its way into reality in my life. In my early 20s, I was away on a trip in Kenya. And in the middle of a a really hard time of work and mission work on the field, we took a brief two-day hiatus to do a safari. And we were way out in the middle of nowhere, staying at a really beautiful resort. Running water, power, comfort, it was great. And uh, the night was winding down. I did my daily business, or nightly business if you will, uh, before going to bed. And my roommate, whom I didn't really know very well, came in the bathroom right after me and immediately began screaming. And uh, he was hitting notes that no male older than 10 should be able to hit. And uh, the guy came running out in terror, yelling, there's a snake in there. And so I, I look, in, and sure enough, there's a, there's a black snake right beside the toilet, where I'd just been standing, doing my nightly business. Well, we call hotel security. They come in nonchalantly, hit the snake on the head with a stick, and throw it out. And, uh, and, and still, like, tremoring terror, he asks... What kind of snake was that? And uh, shrugging their shoulders, they say, it was a black mamba. Now, my roommate, who's hysterical, finds a new level of hysteria. (laughs) Tremoring, almost crying. And I simply sort of shrug my shoulders like, what's the big deal? Now, I'm from the South. We got snakes everywhere. No big deal. Didn't really come home to me. A couple days later, we're driving in a van across the countryside, and some of the nationals in the van tell the van to stop. They see a man walking across the field 150 yards away. They get out and run towards him. We have no idea what's going on from the van. They start picking up stones and throwing it at the ground. Really strange behavior. And uh, what happens is they, I don't know if it's successfully or not, I don't know what their intention was, but they basically chase what we discover to be a cobra from 150 yards away, right up to the van. Again, not sure this was their intent. This cobra, I do not exaggerate, was 15 feet long. And when it comes up to the van, it actually stops before the van and rises up to strike like three feet away. I know I'm supposed to be afraid of this. There's a little old lady in front of me. I don't know her. We're just on this trip together. I call her Grandma Birdie. She has the window of the van open taking pictures. That's when I began to realize that we as, as people, we're really bad at knowing what we're supposed to fear and what we're not. You know, in America, one in 50 million people get killed by a snake. One in 50 million. 20,000 people a year die in Africa from snake bites. I just had no idea what I was supposed to be afraid of 
and what I wasn't. And I think that's true of us. And some of you already are saying, like, well, great story, dude, but this doesn't apply to me because I'm not afraid of anything. I don't think that's true. And I think along with not knowing what we should fear and what we shouldn't, we're also really bad at recognizing the fear that exists in our lives. That uh, we're pretty good at taking fears that exist in our lives and dressing it up in culturally approved costumes that we sometimes label worry, stress, and anxiety. And I'm not saying that all worry, stress, and anxiety is rooted in fear, but I think a lot of it is. And and this morning, as we look at the text, I think Jesus is going to show us, we're going to see in the text, that there's fear in our lives that if we allow it to run its course, will eat us alive from the inside, will slowly but surely kill our souls. But that there's a fear, there is a fear that will cast out all other fears, that will set us free. Right fear of a loving Father will free you from fear. If you're one of the last five or six fastidious note-takers in America, here's your outline. Healing for hypocrisy, the foolish fear of man, and a perfect fear that casts out fear. So Jesus begins our text with this warning, beware. That's not a word any of you actually normally say, and if so, you're, you're probably an English major. Um, but, but you say beware when there's like an immediate threat, right? And if you look at the text, there's this period of incredible popularity. There's crowds thronging to him. It doesn't make sense. But Jesus is able to see things that they're not able to see, that we're not able to see. And what he sees is the threat of persecution. He'll talk about this in verse 8, not in our text. And he's able to see how the popularity they enjoy and the threat of persecution can lead the disciples and his followers to compromise. He just finished taking apart the Pharisees, the look-good professional experts, And uh, he warns them here, the Pharisees. What he's basically saying is, there's a danger here, greater than than, uh, persecution, is that you would compromise in order to retain your popularity. And Jesus here warns them about hypocrisy. You may be thinking hypocrisy is something you have or you don't have, something you are or you're not. But Jesus speaks of hypocrisy as a corruption. Verse 1, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, Most of you probably don't have leaven laying around. This is an Old Testament metaphor for an an internal corruption. And uh, our everyday metaphors might be something like, well, your grandparents' metaphors would have been one bad apple spoils the... Yeah, one person said it, Bushel. Uh, I think perhaps one of our more well-known current metaphors would be virus. How viruses, basically, the strand of information that some jerk in another country wrote, so small I can't see it, has the ability to internally invade and thoroughly corrupt my operating system, my computer, and, and basically run my life. Like, that's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. The, the power of something small and, uh, and seemingly insignificant to internally corrupt and ruin. Jesus is saying that hypocrisy has the power to inter- internally thoroughly corrupt you and ruin you. And that this is something by nature that we cover up. You see in verses 2 and 3, this is covered up. This is hidden. These are things set in the dark. These are things whispered in the closet. And not only are these acts, sins, thoughts, desires corrupting us from the inside out, 
not only are they hidden, but they end up leading us to a double life. All this stuff is going in under the surface, or going on in the dark, and we work really hard to maintain the appearance of having everything together. It produces a double life. And much of made is made from critics and skeptics of Christianity about how Christians are hypocrites, and the proper response is, yes, we are. Uh, but the reality is, this is a human condition. Everyone wants to appear better than they really are. We actually so want it that we're thoroughly convinced it's true. Most of us actually think we're much better than we are. We work really hard to manufacture the belief that we really are doing well, despite all the internal corruption going on. And Jesus here warns that there will be a time when that corruption that's covered up so well will be discovered. All will be revealed. It will be made known. It will be heard in the light. It will be proclaimed on the housetops. The inner thoughts, the words, the lust, the envy, the hatred, all of it will be revealed. Let's play a game. The game is called, Would You Rather? At noon today, right back here, downloadable for everyone and anyone who wants it, is a thorough record of everything you've thought, said, or done in the dark. All the bad thoughts, all the lusts, all the desires, all the hatred, all the envy. Free to anyone who wants it. Would you rather undergo that at noon, or, your option is this, upon leaving after chapel, there will be someone by the door with a clipboard. If you sign your name, you won't have to undergo that 12 o'clock exposure. But you're done here. School's over. You're out of here. And you've lost all your credit. This just never happened. Which would you rather have happen? The full revelation of all that you are, for anyone who wants it, or to have to leave this place. I think for some of you, that's a really, really hard choice. And for some of you, it's a really easy choice. I'm out of here. I'm done. I'll just start over somewhere else. Let me give you a quick test. Some of you are thinking, like, hey, the cure for this is worse than the disease. Um, I, I, what you're asking here is really hard. Some of you may not be convinced that this is really a problem for you. Hey, the biggest problem here is not that you will be discovered. It's actually that you will continue to live a double life that will lead to a divided life. I sit down with students all the time who disappear for years and show up and say, they ask this question, I don't know how I got here. How did I get here? And what happens is they begin to make decisions with the thorough conviction that the things they do, the decisions they make, won't have consequences. And they have a plan in life to be here, to be this kind of person. But slowly over time, because of the, the decisions they make and the things they do, they're going this way. And they realize, finally, this is really far from this. The greatest thing you should be afraid of is not being discovered. It's that you would end up being a different kind of person than you're supposed to be, even than you think you are. So let me give you a quick test. I call this the double life in college test. Who, if anyone, knows what you're really like, especially in private? Are you a different person with different people on different days? In other words, are you a different person on Sunday? Or are you a different person on Friday and Saturday night? Are you a different person at home with your friends than you are here in class? 
And third, this is the fun one, the really fun one. I want to I be in the room. If I could get together everyone in your life, all your friends, all your family, your sweet grandmother, everyone that knows you, and put them in a room and say, I want you to talk about Sarah for an hour. Everything you know about her. Everything. Everything. But you're not allowed to be in the room. Would that freak you out? Everyone who knows anything about you all together to talk about you. Would that concern you? There is a cure for this, for the fear of discovery, for the fear of being found out, for the cure for the double life. It's this. You can rat yourself out. You can give yourself up. If you're afraid of being discovered, well, why don't you just tell people the truth? The cure is honesty. David Viscott, a pretty well-known therapist, wrote in his book, Emotional Resilience, very first sentence, If you lived honestly, your life would heal itself. He's talking about integrity. We hear the word integrity and we automatically think honesty. Well, that's sort of within the semantic range of the word. But it actually means wholeness. It means to be one. And that's really important because to be one, whole human being, a healthy human being, you have to be honest. You have to be honest. And I want to challenge you to be honest. Be honest with yourself about your real self, what you're really like. Be honest with God who already knows you. Be honest with God about what you're really like, what you really want, what you really desire. And try to be honest with at least one person. Consider that my challenge for the semester. Some of you are thinking, man, your cure, which is honesty, sounds worse than the disease. I'm not sure I want to do this. Let me give you a few things that you're going to need if you're going to be honest. We have to face our fears. And the first is the foolish fear of man. Jesus here in verse 4 has some hard words. We need to pay attention to them. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. If you read that carefully and you're a thinking person, you should ask the question, wait, what else could they do? We killed him. Let's kick him while he's down. Let's spit on him. He's dead. Take that. You're already dead. What else can you do? But I think Jesus is implying here there's more to life than just your physical being. There's qualities of joy and life and peace. But also there's duration in in view here. There are those that can end your life and take your days. But there's a God that holds all the days forever, for eternity. And it's Him that we should fear more than man. We don't worry. You don't worry for the most part about dying for your faith. What do you worry about? What are you stressed and anxious about? And uh, I'll take the liberty to answer that question for most of you. There may be some other things here, but I think most of us fear being left out, being rejected. And I think it takes a couple different forms when you're in college. Try these on. Some of you fear missing out. Fear of missing out. FOMO. Coincidentally, maybe not. Yes, coincidentally. Fear of man. Fear of missing out. See how close they are. Completely coincidental. Um, yes, you're concerned that you're, whether it's because you're not cool enough, cute enough, smart enough, athletic enough, rich enough, or perhaps because of your choices, your, your, your morals, either what you will do or won't do, that you'll be left out, left behind, and alone. 
There's an alternate version. There are probably some people here, I am convinced there are some people here who say, I'm not like that. I'm not so shallow and vain. I don't really care. I'm just going to be myself. I, I've got half, half a mind to think that some of you are thinking this. Actually, you've got a worst case of fear. You're afraid to even get out there and try to make friends. You're so afraid of rejection, you won't even try. There's some of you here like that. I'm not even going to try because I know I won't make the cut, so I'm just going to stay in my room and play video games all day. So fear of missing out. There are some of you that are afraid of uh, missing the cut. If one is social, the other one's success. You're concerned you're not smart enough, competent enough, that your hard work in the end won't achieve its goals, that there's a time in which they, whoever they are, whether it's your professors or your parents or those who are going to eventually hire you, are going to say, sorry, you didn't make the cut. And what you need to know is both groups of people are both living with a fear of man. That we fear those people, they, their expectations, their disappointments, their judgment. And that fuels the internal machinery in your heart of anxiety and worry and stress and fear. What will they think? What do they think? When will they find out? Can I make the cut? And you take all that fear and you marry it together with your own desires and it drives us into this double life where you are actually much more afraid than you know. Most of us live in fear far more than we realize. Fear of men. Who's going to hire and fire? Will I make the grade? Will I actually have friends here or not? Will anyone love me? Deep down, it's fear of man. Can you see it? I'm going to ask you to chase your stress and worry backwards into your heart and see if there's not fear of man there. The good news is you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to. There is a cure. There's a perfect fear that casts out fear. Perfect fear that casts out fear. Some of you are thinking, hey, that sounds familiar. Uh, this guy named John in his letter titled 1 John wrote, uh, perfect love casts out fear. So yes, I'm riffing on that. But there's a perfect fear that casts out fear. And we see in verse 5, there really is a reason to fear. There is one who has the authority to cast into hell. There's a God who knows your heart knows all you've said, done, thought, wanted to do, but haven't yet done. And he has both the authority and the reason to bring down the hammer. He's the creator who's made us. He's made his will known to us. He's the judge who's been forbearing, who's been merciful, who gives us a lifetime to repent. He's the one who so wants us to repent that he sent his own son to pursue us to the point of death. And He has the right and the authority to judge us. We have a reason to fear Him, don't we? We need to stop right here, take assessment real quick. These are the words of Jesus. Uh, If some of you here have this picture of Jesus as the all-loving, all-affirming, all-tolerating, rainbows, puppy dogs, snow cones, 
Uh, you need to hear what Jesus says here. Fear him. In case you missed it, he reiterates, Yes, I tell you, fear him. Can't get away from it. These are the words of Jesus. And the reality is, many of us, even when we know better in our minds, in our clearest days, theologically and otherwise, yes, God is big, and people are small, He's achieved significance, for the most part, on an everyday basis, most of us operate just the opposite assumption. That God is small, and detached, and unconcerned, and that people and their opinions, and what they can do, and what they can say, is the chief issue in our life. Most of us live with the idea that people are big and God is small. And that's why we're afraid of people and their opinions so much. Some of you are thinking perhaps, well, if what you're arguing then is that we should live in fear of some giant cosmic tyrant. You want us to be enslaved to some big fearful God. And I would say, oh, oh contraire, mon frere. Verse 7 Jesus, having said, fear him, yes, fear him, look at verse 7, says, fear not. You see that? He just says, like a couple verses ago, fear him, yes, I tell you, fear him, and now verse 7 says, fear not. How is that possible? Being contradictory? Did you forget what you just said? And Jesus goes on to explain how if we're children of the Father, children of this God whom we should fear, that we can also not fear. He, he tells us that we have a God who doesn't forget. He says there are five sparrows are sold for two pennies, and God never forgets those birds. It's the most common bird. I mean, you can buy these things for like pennies in the market. They're, we, they're almost insignificant to us. We go, I live in the city. We don't even see birds. And yet there are sparrows in Oakland. We completely forget they're there. They're beautiful and we forget them. God doesn't forget a single blasted one ever. That's what the text says. He doesn't forget what seems to us to be the most insignificant thing. He never forgets. Now that might sound like a threat to some of you. Like, okay, big judging God never forgets anything. And you might end up with this picture of God like uh, the Santa Claus in this song that some of you may have heard. This is a song from this sweet little lady called Granny O'Grimm. Some of you may have heard this. If not, you need to go watch it. It's a cartoon. She sits by the fire in a Christmas tree and she rocks and she sings this song. And I'm going to sing it and don't you dare laugh at me. But you can laugh at the song. It goes like this. You better not cry. You better not frown. Don't want Santa to burn your tree down. That's what he does to bad people like you. You know he's always judging everything you do and say. And even if you've had one bad thought, he'll wreck your Christmas day. It's all your own fault. There's no one to blame. Don't come crying to me when your tree is in flames. Santa Claus is coming to destroy you. Yeah. If you have a picture, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, if I ever do karaoke, I'll just do that one song. The only thing I can sing. If you have a picture of an all-powerful God who never forgets, you can have a picture of God that ends up like this. But that's not the picture of God in our text. The picture of God in our text is one who doesn't forget, but one who's our Father, verse 7. Even the hairs of our head are numbered, and you're of much more value than the sparrows. Jesus is saying here is we have a God, if we're His child, 
He knows us. He's engrossed with us. He delights in us. He'll never, ever, ever forget us. He cares for us so much that He gave His own Son. As as Paul tells us elsewhere, He who did not spare His own Son for you, how will He not also then give you all these things? He's our Father. He cares for us. And when you put this together, an all-powerful God, the most powerful person in the universe that knows everything about you and still is willing to send a son for you and care for you sacrificially and love you and never forget you, then you end up with a perfect fear for a perfect father. And that will cast out all your fears. What else do you have to be afraid of? Why fear man? Why fear missing out? Why fear missing the cut? The all-powerful God of the universe who's in charge of everything loves you and cares for you. And no one has ever put this better than the Apostle Paul. Now normally at this point what I would try to do in this sermon at the end here is tell some story where I grasp like through the microphone and I reach in and grab your heart and squeeze it with some powerful story. I don't have one. That's okay. What I actually want more than anything though is for you to know the reality of these words from Romans. Romans 12, excuse me, Romans 8. This is what Paul writes. Think about what it's like to live with this kind of assurance and a loving Father. What shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who will separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? I will add fear of man. Fear of missing the cut. Fear of not making the grade. Fear of not being popular enough. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I am sure that neither death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what I want for you more than anything. For you to know the all-powerful, perfect God and to live with the right kind of fear for Him that sets you free from every fear. Let me pray. Our great Father in Heaven, we thank You that You are the all-powerful, supreme God. We have reason to fear You.